come back to this uh, letter of Paul. And uh, before I read these verses, let me just tell you uh, that there will be three points. These are the things I want you to kind of have in mind. Context, what's going on, where is this passage kind of inserted, where is it? It's context. And then second, the, the meaning of the passage. And then third, some lessons learned, which we're going to return to actually next week and explore a little more deeply. So three things, context, meaning, and lessons. That's what we're going to try to wrestle with as we come to this passage. So read with me Romans 3, beginning at verse 1. And what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles. You may remember from a few months ago that that word literally translated means words, the words of God. They were entrusted with the words of God, and that is a reference to the Old Testament canon. Genesis through Malachi, the word that God had entrusted to Israel for them to preserve and keep and love and cherish and learn from and know from that word, his purposes and what he's like and why they exist, all of that stuff, that's what's in view when Paul uses that phrase, the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, which means according to human reasoning. That's what he's suggesting. I'm speaking as I ask this question in the way that people would reason if they were thinking about the things I'm talking about here. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, portion of your word, uh, though uh, I'm guessing as we read this, we we probably don't have much idea what in the world is going on here. Still, it is your word to us. And there are things that you have for us in this portion of your word. So, Lord, from your word, take the things that we need and, and, and help us and, and work them into our hearts and, and change us with this, your word. You, you do that by your word and your spirit. You bring change. And I pray that... that as we consider your word this morning, you'd be pleased to be present to do that for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're back at Romans, Romans chapter 3. And you come to this passage, and a lot of the commentators will say that these eight verses are among the hardest in this letter to understand. 
They're, they're some of the tum- toughest verses in this letter to understand. Um, but here we are. <laughs> we can't, you know, we can't avoid it just because it's difficult. It's the Word of God. And, and for those of you, you know, I see some folks I've not met, so I'm just going to say this for your, for your benefit, but as a reminder to all of us, you know, we have this conviction here in this church that this, this book, this one book, these 66 books that make up for us this one book, this, this is the Word of God. This is, this is the Word of God. This is God having spoken and having preserved what He has spoken, uh, speaking into our world, speaking into the, to the chaos and the craziness and the, and the multiplicity of opinions and all of the rest. It's, it's the one voice whose voice really matters speaking into our world and saying, this is true. This is what is true. This is what you need to know about me. This is what you need to know about you. This is what you need to know about what's going on in the world. This is true. Okay? There's this bumper sticker that some of you have seen. Maybe you've even put it on your cars. If you have, take it off. (laughs) If you've put this bumper sticker on your car, take it off. It's this bumper sticker that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. If you're not going to take the whole bumper sticker off, at least take out the middle proposition. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. What's my point? My point is that your believing what the Bible says doesn't settle the issue of whether or not it's true. Right? That's what we're affirming here, that God has spoken into this world, whether I like it or not or believe it or not, the infinite personal God who is really there, who has created the world, everything that you are and everything that you see around you has not left us in darkness. He's not left us in a condition of confusion. He's spoken into the world, and whether I like it or not or believe it or not, what he says is true. So, the bumper sticker should say, God said it, that settles it. God said it. And, and that is something for which you and I should be profoundly thankful. If the infinite personal God who is really there doesn't speak into this world, wh- what are we left with? We have opinions. And your opinion is as good as mine, mine as good as yours. Idi Amin's is as good as the most enlightened and gracious and compassionate philosopher on the planet. But God speaks into this world and says, these things are true. And he's preserved a record of what he's spoken. That's what this Bible is. And that should be a great relief to you, that there's a place to go to find things that are true, true about God, true about you, true about the world in which you live, true about what, is God, what God is doing in the world. That's what this book is. And we come to this particular passage, and the commentators say, as you work your way through Romans, this is one of the toughest passages in the whole letter. So what we're going to do is look very briefly at context so that we've got the environment in which this thing is revealed to us. And then we're going to try to look at the meaning of the thing, and then I want to extract some lessons from it, which we'll come back to next week and elaborate on. First, what's the context? Well, remember just a couple of things, just a couple of things 
about context. Remember in the first place that Paul is writing to these Christians who are in Rome, and they are both Jewish in background and Gentile in background. We don't know how many congregations there were. They didn't meet in buildings like this. This is only 30 years after, less than 30 years, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, you'll, you'll remember or you'll know or you can learn, you can see that there were people in Jerusalem at the time of the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then Pentecost. There were people in Jerusalem who had come for Passover. They'd come for Pentecost. They stayed there through that whole 50 days. Some of those people were from Rome. And after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, these people who had come from Rome to Jerusalem and who witnessed these things, they were witnesses of the trial, the execution. They heard it in the streets. Then they were witnesses. They heard it in the streets about the fact that this man who was dead was alive again. They stuck around for the next seven weeks. And on the 50th day after the Passover, the Spirit was poured out. They were all assembled there. People are speaking in tongues. There's all kind of weird stuff going on, weird in their minds. And Peter gets up to preach. And who, who hears him preach? Well, people from Rome hear him preach. And wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, some of those people who were Jews and Gentile proselytes, Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem from Rome, had come to the Passover to hear all this stuff, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, they were convinced by the grace of God, persuaded that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. There were people from Rome in that crowd who cried out, to Peter when Peter preached and said, what must I do to be saved? And Peter told them, repent and believe the gospel and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so they said, okay. They were cut to the heart, the text says in Acts 2. Well, what did they do after they believed repented, believed, embraced Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, deliverer, savior, king, what did they do? They went back to Rome. And what went with them when they went back to Rome? The gospel. The gospel went with them. And what did they do when they got back to Rome? They began to meet together. They began to meet for worship. They began to meet to consider the gospel, to think about the gospel, to study the scriptures, if you will, to use modern sorts of imagery. They went to a Billy Graham crusade, and some of them got saved. And they left the Billy Graham crusade, and they went back to Illyria or Paducah or some wherever it was that they went after the crusade. And what did they do? They started gathering together to study these things of which they had just begun to learn. And that's what these folks did in Rome. And now we're 25 years later, approximately, 25 years later. Paul's never been to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. But he wants those Christians in Rome to understand what he understands the gospel to be. And so he writes this letter. He's probably in Corinth. And he's writing this letter because he wants to go to Rome. He tells us that in chapter 1 on a couple of different occasions. Okay, so that's the context. There are Christians in Rome. Paul wants to go there, and he wants to preach to them, and he wants them to know how he thinks about the gospel, what he understands the gospel to be. 
Then secondly, again, he's writing to Christians, but he's also writing to people. You, you got to figure that this was going on. You got to figure not only was he writing to an audience made up of Christians, both Jew and Gentile, but there were probably seekers in these audiences, in these groups of Christians who were gathering all around the city in homes, sometimes in public places, to meet together for worship and to study and to learn more about the gospel. Okay, so he's writing, again, to a mixed audience, Jews, Gentiles, those who are convinced, those who need to be convinced. Okay, and so as he writes this letter, He's anticipating the questions that people will ask. Now, he's been doing this for 25 years, right? He's been preaching the gospel for 25 years. After 25 years of preaching the gospel, the particular gospel that Paul preaches, you begin to get a feel for the kinds of questions that people have as you preach the gospel. I've been doing it for 30 years. Okay? When I'm interacting with people who are not Christians, there are, there, there are questions that come up. Okay? You, you, you mean, you, you really, you really believe that people are sinners? Come on. We're educated, enlightened people here in the 20th, now 21st century. You don't really believe that, do you? Now look, it's, it's a legitimate question. I don't disparage people for asking the question. The, the Bethlehem thing, you really believe that that baby in that manger was God incarnate? Let's talk about this. What about the problem of evil? If God is good and his, and his governance of the whole of the universe and everything that you see and, and stuff you don't see, his good, if he is good and his governance is good, how do you account for bad things happening to good people? Though you, you know, you, when you do this, and I'm privileged to do it and have been privileged to do it for 30 years, you begin to get a feel for the kinds of questions that people have. And the Apostle Paul, who's been doing it for 25 years and who's been involved in missionary activity for at least 10 of those 25 years, planting churches all across what is now Turkey, he's begun to get a feel for the kinds of questions that people will ask. And he's anticipating those questions in this letter. Over and over and over again, you see it in chapter 3, you see it in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. You see a long discourse in answer to a question that's posed again in chapter 9, which is basically the question that's posed here. What is the advantage of the Jew? He goes into an extended discourse in response to that question. He's always interacting with the questions that he knows people have about this gospel. And that's what we come to when we come to this third chapter. It's Paul knowing, having a feel for his audience, anticipating their questions, and wanting to be able to give honest answers to honest questions. He's a good pastor. He's a good teacher. He's a compassionate evangelist. And so he responds to what it is he anticipates these people asking as he preaches this gospel. So that's context. That's where it is sort of historically, and that's the kind of person that Paul is as he writes this letter to these folks who are living in Rome. Now, 
think this is the kind of the third part of this. Think, think for a minute with me about what it is that Paul has said so far. Here's what he has said so far, and I've got to summarize this really quickly, but it's in chapters 1 and 2. So far, what he has said is, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, my dear readers and friends, I do believe in sin. And I do believe that sin is an enormous problem. I I love the way we prayed about it in our service. It robs of life, it steals life, and it robs God of glory. It steals God's glory. Sin is a problem. Sin is a very big problem. And it is a problem for Jew and Gentile alike. That's where he's going. Verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks alike, are under sin, meaning under its dominion, under its power, under the threat of judgment that comes because of it, under the threat of wrath because God is a righteous God. He is a righteous God. Righteousness in this letter has shades and nuances of meaning. But what is behind those shades and nuances of meaning is simply this. Whenever God does anything, he does it right. There is a rightness about God. And because there is a rightness about God, and because God cares about what is right, he will deal with everything that is wrong. So where there is an injustice, he'll address it. Where there is unrighteousness, he will address it. Where there is brutality and cruelty and oppression, you can be thankful that there is a God in the heavens who rules and governs all things for his glory, for the good of his people, and he will deal with oppression and injustice and brutality. He will. He will. And Paul's point, as he comes up to this particular part of the letter, is that this sin, which provokes rightly the righteous indignation, wrath, and judgment of God, this sin is a universal problem. It's a problem for Jew, and it's a problem for Gentile. And what he's been arguing specifically in the second chapter is that the Jews who have all of these wonderful privileges and advantages, which he will talk about in chapter 9, which he begins to allude to in chapter 3, Jews who have all of these advantages, all of these wonderful benefits and blessings, Jews themselves, though the descendants of Abraham, to whom the first promise was made, though blessed by being in covenant relationship with the infinite personal God who is really there, Jews and Gentiles alike stand before God with this problem of sin. And Jews cannot claim ethnicity, possession of the law, or religious practices as some sort of immunization against the prospect and the threat of the wrath and judgment of God. That's what he's been saying in chapter 2. You can't claim ethnicity. 
just because you were born in this country, just because you have this pedigree, it doesn't protect you from the wrath and judgment of God. Just because you have the law, just because you have a moral code, just because you think you're more moral than other that's not going to protect you from the wrath and judgment of God. Just because you practice particular things, it's not going to protect you from the wrath and judgment of God. And throughout that second chapter, he exposes again and again and again, in fact, the hypocrisy of the Jews. You claim to be one thing, but in fact, you're another. You claim to possess one thing, but in fact, you do another. You claim to have one thing, but you are in fact walking in a way that's inconsistent with what you claim to have. And so you too are exposed to the wrath and judgment of God. Now, look, okay, say this again for the benefit of everybody, for all of us, maybe especially those of you who are new, I know this isn't the kind of message that is calculated to win friends and influence people. I've told you this. I read Dale Carnegie's book. It's one of the first books I read as a new Christian 35 years ago, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Rule number one, don't talk about sin. Rule number two, remember their names and they'll love you forever. Actually, remember their names was first, and he never did mention sin. But you can imagine, can't you? Dale Carnegie saying, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about how mean, nasty, and brutish people are. You'll never make the sale. You'll never get in the door. I understand that this is not popular. Paul understood it as well. But it is the word of God to us, my friends. And it is the true assessment of our condition that we are desperately needy sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. So Paul, having then provided this assessment of the human condition, Jew, Gentile, alike under sin, exposed to the wrath and judgment of God, Paul then begins to anticipate the questions that people will raise, the questions they will ask. And what you have in these eight verses is a succession of questions. Now here's the, and I, and I, don't, I don't mean to, to uh, make uh, common what is going on here. I don't mean to reduce it in its significance. But if you could imagine a classroom, okay? Try to imagine a classroom where a lecturer has, has embarked, has begun to engage his students with his particular argument about whatever subject it is that he's considering and wants them to consider. Okay. Or you might consider a press conference, the picture of a press conference where a particular policy is being proposed. And there are all kinds of reporters and journalists and, and other people in this, in this room and the one who's presenting this policy takes a break and says, okay, now, before I go on, it's time for questions. It's time for questions. Okay? Well, these are the questions that come. These are the questions that come to the lecturer. These are the questions that come to the person who's presenting this policy. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? In rapid-fire succession, Paul anticipates the questions that are going to come to him because of where he has begun this discussion of the gospel with the problem of sin, and particularly and especially with respect to the Jews in the audience 
who believe that they are protected, defended, immune from exposure to the wrath of God because of ethnicity, because they have the law, and because of religious practice, circumcision. So the first question that comes, and what I want to do now, this is sort of the meaning of the passage. This is the second thing. I want to walk you through a kind of an imagined conversation that gets at what is going on in these questions that are in the text. Okay? So here, here it goes, okay? Press conference. First guy raises his hand. First hand goes up, and the first one says, okay, Paul, so what you're telling me, and i got to stick pretty close to the script here because I want to make sure you get it, okay? Okay, Paul, so you're telling me as a Jew that being a Jew, that having the law, that having circumcision doesn't protect me from God's wrath that these things don't keep me immune from judgment, that I'm no different from my Gentile brother who is sitting here. And Paul says, that's right. And he says, well, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? I've always thought I had this great advantage. What advantage is there to being a Jew? What advantage is there to this practice of circumcision? It's an uncomfortable practice. What is this advantage? I don't mean to be indiscreet here, but what is the advantage of circumcision, this mark of national identity? What advantage is there to being a Jew? And Paul says, well, there are tons of advantages. But what is first and foremost, what is at the top of the list of the advantages, is that you have been entrusted with the words of God, the oracles of God. And for the Jew, the Jew would stop and would theoretically would stop and would think, ah, the oracles of God, the word of God, not just a bunch of propositions, not just black words on a white page, but to have, to possess the oracles of God, the words of God is to, is to possess the written record of God's acts, his deeds, and his words for his people. And contained in those acts, deeds, and words is the promise, the promise of a deliverer, one who would come to be a savior, one who would come to free his people from what? From Roman oppression? No, from the greater oppressor, the greatest of all oppressors, the oppressor that steals life, that robs life, that destroys life, it is the promise of a deliverer, redeemer, who would come and destroy sin and evil. That's at the core of what it is to have the great privilege of possessing the promises of God. So that's verses 1 and 2. That's question 1 and response 1. What advantage? Well, first and foremost, at the top of the heap, the oracles of God, the world Word of God. And then a second hand goes up. And this person, perhaps a bit timid, perhaps a bit sheepish, says, look, Paul, there are some of us here who get this. There are some of us Jews who get this. That, that's who is in view here, okay? When, when this phrase, some, are unfaithful, 
in verse 3. Some of the Jews were unfaithful. Well, there are some of us who get this, Paul. Some of us who believe it. Some of us who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. But there are many who do not. There are many who have rejected him. People often, they will, they will ask, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus? Why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus? And I have to kind of hit the pause button, and I have to remind them that the first converts, if you will, were in fact Jews. The Jews did believe. The Jews were, and they have in every generation since. My guess is that in a group this size, there may be one or two who have some Jewish blood coursing through their veins. In every generation, there have been Jews who have embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. It was true in Paul's day. It was true when Peter preached. And these people who are raising the second question are saying, look, we're among those who, who understand this. We, we get this. We appreciate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. But there are many who do not. Does their rejection of Jesus the Messiah, the way it's phrased here in verse 3, does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does the fact that they have rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah make null and void the whole purpose of God with respect to the Jewish nation so that the Jewish nation is now cut out of this whole deal in favor of the Gentiles? That's the question that's being asked. Now, Paul is going to give a much longer and more elaborate answer to that question In chapters 9 and 10 and 11, he's going to deal with that very pressing and very important issue raised by these rather sheepish and timid timid Jews who have raised the question, who believe it and who get it. He's going to expand on it in verses 9 and 10 and 11, or chapters 9 and 10 and 11. He's going to talk about the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and Jews who have not believed and who have rejected Messiah and, and about Gentiles being grafted in and, and about the possibility of Jews who have been cut off being grafted back in again. He's going to talk about it at length. But right here and right now in response to that, Paul's answer is powerful and forceful, and he says, in effect, it it doesn't come through in the ESV. If you have an NIV, you'll see it in the NIV. It comes through in the NIV with real force. God forbid, may it never be. Don't even allow that thought to enter into your consideration of things. That God should fail in his promise with respect to this people. What, what that ultimately ends up being, and Paul has this very much in mind as he responds, what that ends up being is an assault upon the integrity of the person of God. That God should make a promise and not keep it is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Because of the character of God, the nature of God, when he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. Don't even let the idea that God would renege on a promise enter into your thinking. So that's question two and response to. People who would raise this would suggest the possibility 
that God would renege on his promise. And Paul uses as an illustration this citation from Psalm 51. It's verse 4. It's a psalm of David after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba after he has orchestrated the murder of Uriah and then he has orchestrated the cover-up and then he marries Bathsheba. He cites the apostle, he cites King David to illustrate the fact that at one and the same time, you see, God can bring judgment upon unrighteousness and yet preserve his faithfulness to his promise. And where do you see that localized? You see it in David. You see it in David. David, who is judged, who experiences judgment because of his sin. But David, who is the father of the greater David who would come. So Paul directs the attention of Jews back to David, David the king, and suggests to them that in David you see the possibility. How is it possible that God could bring judgment on a nation and at the same time preserve his promise to the nation? You see it in the life of David. He brought judgment upon David, and yet he preserved his promise in David and through David down to the present in Jesus of Nazareth, the greater son of David. It's remarkable. Okay, it's remarkable. So that's question two. Does God reject his people because some have rejected him? May it never be. It is possible for God to bring judgment and preserve his faithfulness to his promise. Now, there's a third hand that goes up. And the third hand asks a completely different question. We're in a press conference, okay? Third, third hand goes, goes up. Okay, Paul. Here's what I hear you saying. As I listen to you talk... I hear you quoting David in Psalm 51. Here's what I hear you saying. I hear you saying that David's sin becomes the occasion for God's justice to be put on display. That's what I hear you saying. That David's sin becomes the occasion for God's justice to be put on display, right? God deals with all people impartially, David included. All Jews included. So really, Paul, what you're saying, given the fact that you are trying to persuade me that Jews who have the covenant, who have Abraham as their father, are not projected, protected from the wrath of God, what you're really saying is that our sin becomes the opportunity for God to display his righteousness. God is deriving a great good, meaning the manifestation of his righteousness, the manifestation of his glory. God is deriving a great good through my evil or through our evil, our being not good. Are you with me? Okay. A great good comes to God, the display of his glory, through my being not good, my sin and unrighteousness. And rather than being protected from wrath... Rather than having security from wrath because of Abraham and all of these other things, my sin actually becomes an advantage to God in that my sin becomes the means by which he displays his righteousness, displays his glory. And Paul, here is what this feels like to me. Instead of being favored, it feels like I'm a tool. It feels like I'm just being set up. 
Instead of having a great advantage, it feels like I'm at a great disadvantage and that God is simply using us so that his sin or so that his righteousness and justice could be put on display. And that doesn't seem fair. That's verse 5. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul's response to this third question is to say, look, if it is an unrighteousness in God to manifest his righteousness in punishing unrighteousness in your case, then it is an unrighteousness in God to punish the unrighteousness of the unrighteous in every case. Okay? And Paul again says, verse 6, may it never be. Don't let such a thought even enter your head that God infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth could ever do anything unrighteous. What Paul is appealing to again behind all of this is the character of God. God forbid, may it never be. Don't allow yourself to think such a thing. If it were true that it were an an unrighteousness in God to punish the unrighteous for their unrighteousness simply so that his righteousness can be put on display more clearly, simply so that he could be more glorified, how could he possibly bring judgment to the world? He couldn't. So that's the third question. And again, what is behind it, I'm convinced, is Paul's understanding of the character of God that God never does unrighteousness, but is always good and just in everything that he does. And it is never unfair and never simply motivated by a desire to see his glory made more manifest for God to punish what deserves to be punished. Well, then the fourth hand goes up, and this questioner takes the general case and personalizes it. Verses 7 and 8. But if I, through my lie, if, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner. This is just continuing the line of reasoning that begins in the previous verses, but personalizing it. Just personalizing it. You can hear this person saying, Look, Paul, this is all fine. This is all great at a theoretical level. But I'm here as a seeker. I'm here as someone who wants to understand this gospel that you're proclaiming. And I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner who's in the crosshairs here. And what you're suggesting, what my ear is hearing, is that my sin simply become my sin, not the sin of the nation, not generally, not out there in some impersonal theoretical sense, but my sin becomes the occasion for the display of God's glory. Let me take it one step further with you, Paul. If that's the calculus, if that's how things work, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go sin more so that God can get more glory. Why not sin more so that more glory might be made manifest? And you see what Paul's response is to that. 
verse 8, he says, this actually is what people are charging us with. They're charging us with some sort of spiritual calculus that suggests that we go do more evil. This is what Paul is being charged with. Let's go. Paul is saying, go do more evil so that greater good may come. If that's the calculus, if that's how you understand it. And Paul would respond very quickly, curtly, simply, and say, number one, it's slander, and number two, to think such a thing warrants condemnation. Because again, the God who makes covenant with Abraham, the God who keeps covenant, the God who makes covenant with his whole creation and keeps covenant with his whole creation, the God who sustains life, preserves life, blesses life in all of its forms, that God who is behind these covenants is clearly the God who is good and righteous and merciful and kind and to suggest such a thing. Let us do more evil, that greater good may come, is simply unthinkable in the mind of the Apostle Paul. So that's what's going on in this passage. I know it's tough. I know it's tough. I'm not going to pass over this just because it's hard to ferret out what's going on in these eight verses. You got to suffer through it with me. (laughs) But let me come to some conclusions And I want to elaborate these more next week, so I'm going to do this fast. But let me come to some conclusions for you. First, clearly, the Bible is not easy. The Bible is not easy. The gospel is simple and it is profound. Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel is like an ocean. It is safe enough for an infant to paddle at the shore and it is large enough to swallow an elephant. When you come to the Bible, my friends, and I want to admonish you about this, you don't come to a little how-to manual. Here are three suggestions for how to get along better in life. Here are 10 steps to have a more fruitful, blessed, and happy marriage. Here are four key insights to being a more effective leader. When you come to the Bible, you come to something that is a great deal more substantive than that. I'm not going to say complex because complex suggests to the mind that I, a very simple person, can never get into this thing. You're coming to something of substance and you're coming to something of substance because the someone who stands behind the something is the real infinite personal God who is really there. And you're finite and he isn't. He is infinite. And you, you just better understand that when the finite bumps up against the infinite, the finite is going to feel the magnitude and weight of the infinite. So that's the first thing. When you come to the Bible, you're coming to some tough stuff and you got to hang in with it and you have to read it and reread it. I've been doing it for 35 years. I still don't get it. I'm still struggling to understand it. The church has been wrestling with these things for 2,000 years and we're still writing books and articles because there is so much substance here and so much that we have to work 
to ferret out. Second thing, really quickly, honest questions deserve honest answers. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what I learned from Francis Schaeffer. Honest questions deserve honest answers. And Paul, the compassionate pastor evangelist, seeks to give those answers to those questions. Here's the third thing. You've always got to keep the big picture in view, especially the character and purpose of God. You can't take a passage like this or a particular preaching of the gospel and lift it out of its context, detach it from its larger context of the character and purposes of God. And that's what Paul is constantly trying to do, get us back to the big picture who is God and his purposes. So you have to keep the big picture in view. And then the third thing, fourth thing, I'm sorry, the fourth thing that you have to do, you have to remember that the cross is always the resolution of these things. The cross is always the resolution of these things. You ask about wrath and judgment. You ask about the purpose of God being fulfilled. Where do you see these things resolved? You see them at the cross. Where justice, as we read, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. You're troubled about wrath in chapters 1 and 2. You're troubled about Paul in chapter 3 saying, all alike are under sin but you've got to keep the cross in front of you because it is at the cross where the unmitigated, unlimited wrath of God is visited upon the undeserving so that the undeserving might be free of that threat. So you always, always have to keep the cross ever before you where justice and mercy kiss And the result for you as a Christian is peace. I'm going to pray for us. I know we're supposed to sing right now, but we're not going to do that because I just looked at the clock and it's way late. But we're going to.